Hello and welcome to Escape Pod 20, a podcast series celebrating 20 years of Escape Studios, the UK's premier VFX animation and game art training and teaching centre. From VFX to game art, animation to motion graphics, Escape Studios is a rookie certified school, Unreal accredited training centre and Houdini certified school, so you know our curriculum is of industry quality. Welcome to this edition of Escape Pod 20. Today we welcome a very special guest, Paul Franklin, creative director and co-founder of DNEG and twice Oscar winning VFX supervisor. Paul is also a great supporter of Escape Studios, providing a VFX scholarship for one of our students each year and is a member of our advisory board and a frequent contributor to our courses. Paul, welcome to Escape Studios Boiler Room. How are you? I'm very good, Saint. Uh, it's wonderful to be here. It's a real privilege to be uh, part of this podcast. The year is 2010. Mm-hmm. It's the year of the genre-defying dream heist movie Inception, directed by Christopher Nolan and starring Leo DiCaprio, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Elliot Page and Tom Hardy. It was very much you know, famous for your uh, role as well as a VFX supervisor, Oscar winning. So first of all, tell us, when did you first hear about Inception as a project? So I, by the time we got to Inception, I'd been working with Chris Nolan for a few years. I, I did the visual effects on Batman Begins and also on The Dark Knight. And we'd actually all been nominated for an Oscar for our visual effects work on The Dark Knight. And so I was in Los Angeles for the Oscars uh, with my family. And we were touring around LA. And I kept getting these phone calls from Chris's office saying, we have Chris Nolan for you. And then the phone would cut out because cell phones were not very good in LA at the time. And eventually, Chris's office finally managed to get through to me when I was standing in the middle of Mickey's Toontown in the Anaheim Disneyland with my kids, who were quite small at the time. And uh, Chris asked me to come in and read this new script. And I'd heard rumours that he was developing a new film and that it was uh, going to be very different to the Dark Knight movies. And I figured it was going to be quite a small-scale project because if you remember, Chris made a movie between Batman Begins and The Dark Knight, The Prestige, the film about the battling Victorian magicians and that's a relatively small scale film for Chris compared to you know the gargantuan blockbusters that I'd worked on so I figured Inception was going to be the same thing and in true Chris Nolan style I went over to his office and was locked into a room very much like this room with a paper copy of the script no digital copies of the script in Chris Nolan's world for security purposes and I had two hours to read the thing and I spent the first half hour just reading and rereading the first 10 pages, trying to figure out what's going on. Because if you remember how the film opens, it keeps switching between the different levels of the dream. And there's nothing to tell, there's no setup at the beginning saying, this is in a dream world and you will be changing levels. It's like, you just had to figure it all out. And then immediately Chris called me on the phone and said, so what do you think? How many visual effects shots? <laughs> what was your answer? Uh, well, I made a massive underestimate because I was still in this mode of thinking this is like the Prestige, which only had 99 shots in it. And um, and I said 300, and I don't think Chris heard me properly. He said, yes, that's what I thought, 800. <laughs> and we ended up in between in the middle somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. And, of course, Inception was filmed in six countries, mm-hmm. uh, beginning in Tokyo and ending in Canada. Yeah. Um, did you travel a lot were, were you, or were you UK bound? What was your life no, I like? Was, I was with the production the whole time. So as the visual effects supervisor, certainly on Chris's movies, your work starts right at the very beginning of pre-production. 
Chris had already written a first draft of the script, which I remember he came and gave us copies of the script at a restaurant here in London uh, one day. And we were trying to be super secret. And then suddenly we're, there's this guy standing by the table and it was McGee, the director of Terminator, uh, who was in the same hotel and had spotted Chris and wanted to come over and talk to him, which was quite funny. Um, but we, yeah, so I was with the production the whole time through pre-production uh, where you're helping to design and develop the ideas for how you're going to use visual effects in the film. You're working with the other HODs. I accompanied Chris and the other HODs, heads of department, on the director's scouts. So we went to Morocco, we took a look at the different locations and figured out how we might shoot there. And, uh, the only place we didn't scout actually was Japan because it was considered to be a bit too expensive and time-consuming to get over there. So I only saw Japan for the first time when we went out there to shoot, uh, which is what was called a pre-shoot, which means it doesn't count towards the overall production budget in some strange Hollywood accounting way. But uh, yeah, I, was, I, I traveled everywhere. I remember at one point when we were crossing the international date line flying from LA to Tokyo, I was so jet lagged and I was constantly trying to figure out what my body clock really was telling me. And I just, it was just too complicated. I couldn't figure it out. And then I stopped being jet lagged. As soon as I stopped thinking about it, I was like, I felt a bit tired, but I was no longer jet lagged. Quite strange. That sounds like you were in a, a layer of uh, yeah. inception in the it first was, It place. felt a bit like that. <laughs> Making the film was very much like the experience of watching the film. Everybody's aware of, of Nolan's penchant for film, mm. 35 mil, yeah. and key sequences were shot on 65 mil uh -huh. uh, and VistaVision, uh, the aerial sequences, I think. Um, how much was this a challenge for you as a, a, a digital VFX person, uh, or had you already acclimatised to Nolan's modus operandi by then? It wasn't really a challenge at all for me, uh, in that um, you know I started my career as a feature film visual effects artist back in the mid-1990s, and... Um, everything was on film in those days. I mean, obviously, we were still manipulating the images digitally. I've always been a digital effects artist. I did very little with traditional optical uh, techniques, um, though they do inform the way I work. But I've always been a, you know, a computer jockey right from the very beginning uh, when I first started animating on my Amiga in the very late 80s. And um, so the techniques of getting an image out of the computer onto the film were well understood by me and my team. And in fact... I was lucky that I had a veteran team of film visual effects artists who knew exactly what they were doing about you know, dealing with the colour space and all the, the idiosyncrasies of film recording and understanding how film behaves because it's, it's, it's not a precise on or off medium. You know, there's, it's uh, analogue and so you get interesting results depending on what you do and, it's, and it's, it varies a little bit. So that wasn't a problem. The bigger issue though was that Chris had decided by the time we got to inter Inception, sorry, um, by the time we got to that film, he was adamant that everything be done at a minimum of 4K resolution, uh, which is slightly higher resolution than a UHD uh, image, uh, which is pretty much standard working practice these days. But back in 2009, 2010, this is quite unusual. And then in addition to the 35mm CinemaScope 4K sequences, we had some sequences shot in 65mm 5Perf, which is basically the format that was used for Lawrence of Arabia. And in fact, I think we had some of the lenses from Lawrence of Arabia on the film, and certainly some of the camera bodies. And um, we did that work at about 6.5K. And then we also shot, uh, as you say, VistaVision, which was used for aerials and miniatures. VistaVision is a 35mm format, but it runs through the gate horizontally, and it's eight perforations wide. So it's like an old-school uh, 
still um, 35 mil stills frame. So it's about three times the resolution of a standard 35 mil frame. And so that was done at, I think, also at 6K. So we were working at very high resolution um, at a time which was when it was quite challenging to do that. And we wrote you know, special software systems to be able to handle uh, the extra uh, resolution. So were you often sort of wondering what resolution different components were? Was it confusing in that respect? No, we were, we were pretty solid on that sort of thing by then. We'd, all, we'd, all, we'd been through the experience of the Dark Knight, which used a combination of 35mm CinemaScope, 35mm um, VistaVision for miniatures and some additional photography, and then um, IMAX, you know, which is 15 perf, 65mm, which is very large resolution. We'd built our high-resolution pipeline for that film, so we knew how to deal with it. And we were just very, very clear on what was going where. And actually, if anything, it's, it's easier than working with digital formats because almost every camera seems to shoot on a different resolution or there's a different area the sensor is exposed. And it's, I find it quite confusing. <laughs> and uh, um, film, uh, there are fewer options, so there are fewer uncertainties. That's a good way to look at it. Yes, certainly. So, so you know, going back to that sort of time, you were you were practically locked in that room yes. reading the script for the first time, you know, and that must have made your head spin in, in the first place. Did, but, yes. but in in terms of creating um, the VFX for Inception, what were the most challenging bits for you? What did what did you go? I don't know how we're going to do this, or was it all, or was it all pretty uh, obvious? I don't think there was anything where I turned to my crew and thought, I don't know if we can do this. I think everything felt like it was in the realms of possibility. But more of a challenge was figuring out how to get the storytelling right. I think by the time we got to Inception, I began to feel that with modern digital visual effects technique, anything was achievable, uh, given enough time and enough money. Uh, and so the challenge becomes more one of, why are you doing it? You know, what's the? Is there a good story reason for having this image here at this point? Um, because it's quite easy to sort of slip into spectacle for its own sake. And it was obvious to me from reading the script that visual effects was very much at the heart of storytelling in the film. And so that was the bigger challenge. And so that was figuring out the creative approach to uh, showing things. So a good example would be the famous shot of Paris folding. We spent a lot of time discussing that, about what the mechanism was that would go on in the uh, in the scene. And Chris had, uh, you know, his script was very descriptive. It really told you that what was going on, that Ariadne, uh, Elliot's character, is manipulating the world. And she comes from an engineering background, Ariadne. She's an architect. So she's taking a sort of engineering approach to manipulating the dream world. So we imagine this idea of a big mechanism behind it. It was inspired by the way the drawbridges raise up in Chicago, which we'd all seen when we were filming the Batman movies. And, um, <clears throat> you know, there's a, obviously there's a very complex technical execution involved to get the level of detail and make it look photographically real. And that was a, that was a challenge, uh, but I always felt confident that the team would figure out a way. And, you know, they knocked it out of the park on that level. But that moment where you see this world folding up and trying to tell it in one shot, because it's actually one continuous shot that's dipped into four times... That was the bigger challenge. And um, the way that we got there was uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Alison Wartman, who's a fantastic computer graphics supervisor at DNEG. Uh, Ali uh, had built a sort of scratch model of Paris, just ripping stuff out of Google Earth and simple box buildings with photographs mapped onto them. 
And she had figured out the mechanism how the individual sections of the city would fold up. And she created this camera move, which just looked down the street and then tilted up and then panned over as this roof came over and then finished where the two monuments meet, if you look at the very final shot, part of the shot. And, and Ali presented that to me is that, well, this is a demonstration of how the technical side of it works, so you can see all the features of it. And it was, you know, it was, it was pretty compelling. And we showed it to Chris, and Chris said, well, that's it, that's the shot. And we were both saying, well, no, we've, this is just demonstrating the technical thing. He says, yes, but you've nailed it. You've landed on exactly the way to, to or rather, Ali had nailed it. And, uh, and that was the animation we then used to cue the action of the cinematographer. And if you, you can see some of the behind the stills photos, and Chris is holding my laptop, complete with the pink stickers my daughter had put onto it. And he's watching that early animation that Ali made, and he's using it to cue Leo and Elliot in their performance. And they had watched it all, so they knew where they were supposed to look as this. And we just shot that handheld on the street uh, in available light in uh, Paris. It was very, very quick to shoot that scene. And um, I'm fascinated by this, uh, the relationship of the VFX supervisor and the director, because no. obviously, you know, not everything goes according to plan. No. Some, sometimes things come out of the blue mm -hmm. and you have to react yeah. to that. How, you know, were there times when very unexpected things happened that you had to be more diplomatic about? Does it work like that? Uh, no, I mean, what, the way it worked, works with Chris at least, mm -hmm. is that he values the creative input of all his key leads. And, you know, there's this sort of legend about Chris hates visual effects and doesn't use CGI and all this sort of nonsense. He doesn't use it unnecessarily. He uses it where it's appropriate. And obviously, folding Paris is an appropriate moment for visual effects to be part of it. But you're very much working as a partner with the other departments. So you're working with locations to figure out uh, the place to shoot it. Uh, and you're certainly working with, uh, in this case, uh, camera department with Wally, who hand-operated that shot and then the camera was mounted on his shoulder. Uh, Wally Fister, who's the cinematographer, who won the Oscar for Best Cinematography for Inception as well. And, um, and you're, when you're on set, you're there to be part of a constant, ongoing creative conversation. And so there were some things which developed out of our response to the location. A good example would be the scene that comes just after that, is the mirrored bridge moment, which is actually probably my favourite bit of visual effects in Inception, uh, because nobody notices it's a visual effect until suddenly this bridge has appeared from nowhere, and you're not quite sure how they've built the bridge out of echoing reflections, because you think they've just walked onto a regular location. And actually what you're looking at is almost 100% digital through that sequence, uh, because we had to rebuild all of the world around them to erase the bridge, reconstruct the river, and then create the bridge out of, um, out of reflections. So that was something that originally we had a totally different idea for that scene and it was a response to when we scouted that location. We suddenly thought, oh, this, this bridge is interesting. These pillars feel like they could be echoing reflections between mirrors, which was an earlier version of the Inception script had a lot more about mirrors and reflections in it. And so this is, that's where the idea still remains. So that was cool. Uh, but at the end of that scene, you see a moment where Ariadne shatters the mirror and it just sort of falls to the floor. And that was actually the hardest thing to get right in that sequence because initially, it's a computer animated mirror. Initially, we kept doing very flamboyant animations with bits of mirror shards flying off in all directions. And Chris was, no, it has to feel real. And I went back and looked at a, a window shattering effect that we'd created for the Dark Knight when the Joker shoots a gun at a window and then throws Rachel out the window at the penthouse party. 
And that's a digitally animated uh, window, but it was based on a real practical effect. And you, they just shattered, just <laughs> falls on the floor. And when eventually we got it right and we presented it to Chris, I can't remember if it was Chris or whether it was me, described it as, you know, we've achieved the disappointment of reality. <laughs> and then, so that then became one of our key phrases that we always used uh, on all visual effects. Did it meet the standard of the disappointment of reality? And then it felt real. It felt like you'd photographed it. 2010 was kind of like, the, not necessarily the peak, but certainly the, the era uh, of stereoscopic 3D. Mm. Um, lots of films were uh, out uh, yes, right. in that. And I, I just wondered... Was there a temptation to do Inception in stereo 3D? There was. You know, there was. There was a lot of pressure from the studio who uh, saw it as a way of uh, you know, finding additional revenue. Um, you know, it potentially was worth another you know, anything up to $30, $40 million on the box office. So it's you know, non-trivial, um, not to be sneezed at. And uh, the conversion costs of a film to stereo are around, you know, it's somewhere in the 10 to $15 million range at the time, I think. So it's an obvious uh, money spinner because you, you can charge a premium for the stereo tickets. So there was, a real, there was a real push to do that. And we did actually go as far as doing a test. We took 10 shots from the movie, including The Folding City, and then the folks at Prime Focus, who now, of course, have merged with DNEG, uh, but in those days we were separate companies, they did a stereo conversion test, and it was actually really good. And we all piled into the Prime Focus Theatre in Hollywood to watch the uh, the big folding city shot. And it looked great. It really was very, very good. It was very exciting. But there just wasn't enough time to do the movie justice. Um, there was This was six weeks before the release of the film. So um, it would have been an incredible scramble. And I was not looking forward to it because it being a digital thing, uh, Chris naturally decided that it must be part of the visual effects responsibility. So there was, we'd hi we hired a, a stereo visual effects supervisor, a wonderful VFX supervisor called Mark Stetson, uh, who's an Oscar winner for The Lord of the Rings. And Mark is a lovely guy. And, uh, but he was only on the show for one day, and then Chris pulled the plug on it, because there was just six weeks, wasn't enough to do, do it the way we wanted to do it. And, and do you think that, that, that material will ever surface and people will be able to see it, or is it locked away, or...? I honestly don't know. I, don't, I imagine it's somewhere in a vault. It was it was put onto film, so there will be a film print somewhere. It's probably in Chris Nolan's personal archive, you know, the black vault, never to be opened. <laughs> well, of course, Inception won four Academy Awards: yeah. best cinematography, best sound editing, best sound mixing, and of course, best visual effects, mm -hmm. uh, which was uh, yourself, Chris Corbold, Andrew Lockley, and Peter Bebb. Yeah. Um, it was your first Academy Award. Mm -hmm. um, it's an amazing achievement, first of all, but um, did, did people look at you differently? Were, did, did, um, did people change their attitude towards you? Did you have a higher status? Were you able to walk into restaurants and get whatever you wanted? Well, sort of yes and no is what I'd say to that. I mean, on, no, in, in my colleagues didn't care. <laughs> in fact, they just uh, took the mickey out of me mercilessly, my uh, long-term colleagues who I'd founded DNEG with. Um, and my senior colleagues at DNEG, you know, it wasn't like I'd come back a different person with, you know, shiny horns on my head or something <laughs> like that. It's, um, and we'd all, you know, the team had been doing absolutely outstanding work for quite a few years by this point. So it was more a case of like, you know, you're getting recognition from your peers in the industry and the wider filmmaking community. And obviously the audiences responded to it well. 
Um, it has an effect, I think, on some younger colleagues who are sort of in awe of Oscar winners. And I think I remember feeling that way myself when I first met people who had won Oscars. Um, because it's you know it's like the gold standard, no pun intended, of of, uh, of what we do in our business. If, if you, certainly if you work in Hollywood, um, it makes a difference going into meetings with uh, say very senior filmmakers who don't know you, because uh, it's a sort of um, it's a validation of what you do. And a, a, a very senior producer friend of mine uh, described it as a, a kind of currency in Hollywood. It means less here in the UK. People are less interested. Um, uh, but it certainly didn't get me a pay rise because that's what people always say. Oh, you must have, you know, doubled your salary. Like, absolutely not. That doesn't happen. Quite the opposite. People think you're going to be too expensive, and they won't work with you. And, and is there is there any pressure on you afterwards? I mean, it's a bit like sort of, uh, you know, you hear of footballers suddenly in 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 the the big time. Does it does it? Did you feel any pressure afterwards? Uh, you. No, not really. I mean, the pressure we put ourselves under is to do the best job uh, we possibly can. And that's how we approached Inception in the first place. I didn't go into the movie thinking, oh, this is going to be an Oscar winner. Quite the opposite, because I felt Chris's percep- the perception of Chris as being an anti-visual effects director who didn't make a big deal about his visual effects. Uh, obviously, inside the Chris Nolan world, we know that's not true. But the public perception meant me, made me think, well, no one's ever going to think about this as a visual effects winning, Oscar winning film. Um, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, I think, well, you know, it was, it was pretty much a lock that year because the film was so successful. It's got spectacular work. Every department is, was at the absolute top of their game on the movie. It's got a great script. Um, and we didn't have, a, you know, the, I think if we'd come out a year earlier, we would have been up against Avatar. And I think they would have crushed us into the dirt. But... Uh, <laughs> Inception had a pretty, pretty clear run at the awards that year, I think. Yeah, and it, it constantly sort of tops the kind of, um, you know, public recognition and, and favourite film for sure. the, the, yeah. the tens uh, in, in terms of um, both box office but also, you know, a, yes. a stunning kind of imagery. Um, I wanted to, uh, just to, to move outside of the world of, you know, film and you working on Inception, were there other things that year that you remember what, which were in your head, whether it was well, other films or whether it was other cultural things? I mean, the, the, you're so consumed by making the film that during the period of making the film, I didn't really notice much else. I mean, the, probably the biggest news event which impacted on us was the eruption of the Icelandic volcano which took place in 2010 and eventually that restricted transatlantic travel and I was hopping back and forth across the uh, the Atlantic to <clears throat> to meet with Chris and meet with other people at Warner Brothers to finish the film and then suddenly that all had to come to an end and we had to complete everything online which was a bit of a challenge because the internet wasn't anywhere near as fast as it is today and uh, and LA was strangely really slow to actually get high speed internet, so it was a it was a constant challenge to get material in front of Chris. And then and from Chris's point of view, he normally would have come to the UK to finish scoring the movie to record the music with Hans Zimmer, but they had to do it all uh, uh, over the wires from uh, Hans's studio in Santa Monica, working with British recording artists over here. Uh, because they couldn't travel, because they were worried about getting trapped in the UK and not being able to get back. Um, so there was that. I mean, my biggest thing is once I'd finished Inception, I uh, I took a long time off, and it was a lovely summer, and I just spent the summer riding my bicycle around southeast London and uh, hanging out with my kids, uh, who I hadn't seen that much of over the last year, and uh, hanging out with my family, and that was uh, 
that was cool. That's amazing. Paul, I've got one more question, and that sure. is, um, did you have any strange dreams whilst working on Inception? You know, I'm sure I did. I'm sure I had dreams about specific things relating to the film, but mostly uh, my dreams would have been anxiety dreams about things going wrong, missing deadlines, and being... Uh, chased by Chris and feeling Chris's disapproval of various things, but uh, for, you know it was it was a pretty stressful time, you know, because you you know you're working on a great project and you want to honour it, you want to honour the intent of the filmmakers, you don't want to let your colleagues down, you want to give the best result you possibly can, and I think uh, given the time we worked, because we churned out the effects pretty quickly on that film, um, Chris still has a very much an indie filmmaker's approach to the way he approaches post-production, which is that he does his 10-week DGA cut and then he presents it to the studio. And he wants a version of the film which is near as damn it finished at the end of that 10 weeks. And so we're pushed very hard to make very high-quality temporary versions of the shots. And really, you've only got about six weeks to turn around a version of almost every shot in the movie to a pretty high standard at 4K resolution on film. Uh, for instance, the interstellar temp cut you could have just released that straight into the cinemas at that point. It was a finished film. Um, and um, that puts you under a huge amount of pressure. So I'm sure I, I, uh, I, was, uh, I was having a lot of anxiety dreams at the time. <laughs> and one can understand the, the yeah. joy of uh, cycling around uh, South London. Yes, that. absolutely. Yeah. Paul Franklin, thank you very much. That was an amazing run around Inception. Thank you, sir. Best film of the, not only 2010, but also the best film of the 10 years after that, I'm sure. Or, <laughs> or maybe not, in, maybe Interstellar uh, also, but uh, another well, it's, film. It's nice to know that you were part of something which sort of broke out of its little sort of genre uh, enclave and uh, crossed over into mainstream consciousness. And uh, um, I was particularly pleased when I started seeing the, things like the Inception folding city becoming a, a meme. Um, because that means you've kind of achieved some sort of penetration to the cultural consciousness, and that was uh, that was pretty pleasing. But you know, it's all the genius of Chris Nolan. You know, what we do is we execute his ideas, and we can we can riff on his ideas. But it was you know, it's Chris's movie from start to finish. Uh, but I can always point to the bits I did. Yeah, and, and of course you, you're an inspiration now to our students. So thank you very thank much you. for so much involvement in Escape Studios. That was Escape Pod Twenty. Thanks very much. Thank you.